Father in heaven, we just thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord, and thank you for the opportunity that we have to jump right into it, Lord. We thank you for the work that you're doing and the power, Lord, that comes, Lord, from studying your word, Lord, how we can grow and how can we can learn and how we can change and how our lives are altered, Lord. And we pray for that, Lord, that, that life-altering experience, Lord, that comes from knowing your word, Lord, learning of you. May that be the case, Father. May we learn from the examples of these churches, Lord, and what they, what they went through, Lord. And so we thank you for them, Lord. And Father, as well, uh, we just lift up to you everything, Lord, that is going on, Lord, in Sheila's life, Lord, what's happening, Lord, with her physically. We just pray for a total and complete healing in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would just have your hand upon her, Father, that, Lord, there would be no complications from this, res- uh, from this stroke, And that, Lord, any medication she's on, Lord, would be helpful, Lord, and not counteractive, Lord. And, and Lord, uh, just give her the strength, Lord, to do, to take the course of action that the doctors are telling her to take, Lord. That, uh, Lord, she would just benefit from all the medication that they're prescribing to her, Lord. And that, Lord, you would just be glorified in her life. We thank you for her, Lord. We pray for your blessing to be upon her, Lord. So go before us now as we get into your word. We thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so God here, uh, through John, of course, has been addressing these churches. We just finished talking about the first church that was the church in Ephesus. And we're going to go through a few more today. Um, and there's some interesting things that are said about these churches. Uh, just one second. Mike, if you can hear me, can you grab my gloves from the back? I forgot those things. I'm sure he heard me. Okay, so... Uh, let's just jump right in. And this is, of course, to the church in Smyrna. So it says this in verse 8. It says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Now, it is interesting. God here, as he's getting ready to write this, uh, as he's you know addressing the church in Smyrna, again, he refers to himself as the first and the last, Right? And then, thank you, Habibi. And then he also refers to himself as the one who was dead and is alive. Now, um, when we talk about him being the one who was dead and is alive, we're not talking about dead and alive like we were dead spiritually, right? We're talking about the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified and he beat death, right? He blew death up. And uh, it's interesting that as he is addressing the church here, as he's talking to the church in Smyrna, referring to himself as the one who was dead and yet is now alive, I actually believe he's using that terminology to actually encourage and build up the church. Well, why would you say that? Well, because this particular church, in this particular church age, in this particular period of time, was going through extraordinary and tremendous suffering, right? If we were looking at the time periods that these churches represent, certainly Ephesus would have represented that time period from the existence of the early church until a little bit into it, right? And then as we get into Smyrna, it represents an age of the church that actually was substantially powerful. It was an age of a church period that was uh, extremely, extremely effective. And I think, and it's unfortunate to say this, the reason for its greatest effectiveness was the fact that it was the church that was heavily persecuted, right? It was the church that went through tremendous suffering. And so it would kind of make sense to hear Jesus say, uh, refer to himself as um, the one who is uh, who, the one which was dead and is alive. But look what he says here. He says, I know thy works. Okay, so pay attention, church in Smyrna. I know you guys. I'm seeing it. I know exactly what you guys are up to, right? And this is actually not a bad thing. It's a good thing, right? He says, and tribulation and poverty. Now, it's interesting. He says, I know the fact that you've been busting your tail, right? I also know about all the trouble you've been going through. I'm keenly aware of all the trials, the difficulty that you've been going through. And then he also says this. He says, I'm also aware of the poverty that you're going through. This is kind of an interesting thing. When we talk about poverty, the reason why so many in the early church that were persecuted for their faith were actually poor was not because it was more spiritual to be poor. Okay, 
It wasn't one of these things where, oh, we're going to be godly people, so as a result, we're going to be poor. The reason why so many in the early church were poor, and many of you may or may not know this, but the reason why is if you had any kind of wealth or any kind of acclamation financially, and you were understood to be somebody who represented Jesus Christ, you had made a profession of faith towards Christ, your money would be confiscated. It would be taken away. Your possessions would be ripped off by the government. They would literally take your money away, and you instantly went from being wealthy to actually being poor. Oftentimes, you went from being free, ready for this one? Catch this. You went from being free and rich to being poor and being a slave. And so if you had made yourself someone who aligned your heart with Jesus Christ, you were also making a conscious decision to potentially lose your freedom, and you were also making a a conscious decision to lose all of your wealth, which is why I'm so grateful to the Lord for the nation that we live in today, right? We live in a nation where the extent of persecution that we see for being Christians is nominal. It really isn't much, right? I get the occasional piece of hate mail on on, on Facebook, I saw one re- today, you know, where some guy just, I, you know, pretty much I'm going to kill you type of guy, you know, cut type of thing. It's like, okay, well, hey, God bless you, bro. You know what I mean? But that's the extent of the type of persecution that we see. There's not much of that going on, right? But, you know, in other countries, no, there's great persecution. People find out about how evil, uh, you know, they get confronted by their evil because they see the light and people who are shining the light are ones who are deeply, horribly persecuted. And of course, we know that the Smyrna church, the church at Smyrna were greatly persecuted for, uh, for their decision in following Christ. But it is interesting how Jesus himself adds a parenthetical when he sees, when he writes down the word poverty. He says, I know your poverty, but look in parentheses, he says, but thou art rich. Wow, that's pretty heavy. I know your poverty, but you know what? On the side, I just want you to understand, you might be poor on this earth physically, but you are rich spiritually. Now, there's a lot of that going on today. I see a lot of people, and by the way, it's not the fact that you make yourself poor so that you can be, you know, spiritual. There's a lot of very poor people that have no spirituality whatsoever, right? They think they're spiritual, but they're really not, and oftentimes, uh, you know, being poor is no, is no real reflection of their spiritual condition. But in this particular case, we know the fact that, yeah, they gave away their wealth, they gave away their riches to obtain real riches that was in heaven. And so in this particular situation and in this particular case, we saw people that didn't have much, but the one thing that they did have was Jesus. And look, I I can't help but to think of my own parents when they came from uh, Egypt to the United States. I remember when my dad first stepped foot in the United States, the only amount of money he had to his pocket, and it was a lot of money at the time, was $100, right? And a medical degree that did no good to him. He, you know, he had to go back and get recertified and, and go back and do all the work that, you know, he had to do in the, in the first place to actually, uh, uh, you know, come back and, and, and get any kind of a decent paying job in this country. And, you know, it is interesting because even I remember as a kid, although we didn't have much, right? We still had everything we need, no doubt, right? But I know I was raised in one of the richest families in this country. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about a mom and a dad who loved God with all of their heart and gave me a heritage that taught me how to love God. And I have nothing but the fondest of memories of my childhood. I had an amazing childhood because of the love that my parents had for God and for one another. I didn't know what it felt like to be threatened by a mom and dad who wanted to divorce each other. And I had no idea what it felt like to not have God as a part of our life at any point. I didn't know what it felt like to not have a dad who wasn't always on me and busted my chops and spanking me when I needed to be spanked and being hard on me when I needed to be, you know, uh, uh, dealt with, you know? I didn't understand any of that kind of stuff, right? I mean, right down even to the point where there'd be times where I knew I was pulling on my mom's emotional uh, purse strings. I knew that there'd be times where I would just go to her and I would, mom, dad did this to me, and I would watch my mom just begin to lose her mind as she's hearing me cry and then literally catch herself for a minute and realize, uh, 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 I'm not falling to your manipulation, right? I love God more than I love you and I love God more than I love my husband. So we're going to go back and we're going to do what your father asked you to do, you know, that type of thing. And so, you know, they always stuck together. But I remember coming from a background of real wealth. And when I talk about real wealth, I'm talking about my walk with God, my heritage that God gave me, right? 
And, and so I had that in my family. So he says, look, I know your poverty, but you're rich. And he says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now, this is a very heavy declaration coming against the Jews. Now, why is this a heavy declaration? Well, because during that time, as you know, it was the Jews that greatly persecuted the church. And the reason why they greatly persecuted the church was because the church was a threat to their way of life. The church was a threat to the actions of the leaders of the synagogues. The church was a threat to the Pharisees and to the priests and so on and so forth. And so there was tremendous suffering that went on. And it was as a direct result of the interaction with the Jews. By the way, it is interesting. Paul himself, as Saul, as we've been learning on Thursdays, was a part of that group of people. He was a part of those. Paul himself consented to the death of Stephen, if you remember, right? And so we saw that, and yet as he got saved and he started walking with God and he started serving the Lord, a majority, if not all of the problems that he experienced, besides some of them, he ran into some tumult with the Gentiles and so on and so forth. He ran into some trials there. But a lot of the trials, a lot of the suffering, a lot of the hardship that he went through, the Apostle Paul was from the Jews. And again, it is interesting to me that there are many people in the name of religion that are actually doing more damage to the cause of the gospel than any other uh, people group that I can see or that I can think of. And I see examples of this happening time and time and time and time again. I've seen this with the Greek Orthodox Church or the Russian Orthodox Church. You know, if you go to Russia, the greatest persecution that they would get would not oftentimes be from the communist government. The, the, the greatest persecution that the Russians would get would oftentimes be from the Russian Orthodox Church. Right? And so it is interesting how people in the name of religion will say that they're bringing order to the place when in reality they're really being used by Satan. And I think it's a, it's a heartbreaking thing. By the way, it is interesting making a comment about like the Greek Orthodox. I'm not so sure about the Russian Orthodox. I know certainly in the Coptic Orthodox world in the, in the, in the Middle East, uh, God is doing something big. And I don't know what's happening specifically, like how God is really actually doing this, but there are tons of people that are coming out of those movements, like saved and, and, and serving God in different ways and leaving the confines of that church that has always been a conduit by which the, the, the church has been persecuted. That's not happening anymore. Uh, it's, it's changing a lot, which I think is really, really amazing. But it is interesting looking back on the Jews about this. The, 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 and by the way, we're not talking about a race of people here when we talk about the Jews. Yes, there is that race involved. But what we're talking about is we're talking about the, the Jews that actually worship God in that style. They claim to, to, to follow all of the tenets of the Old Testament when in reality they missed some of the greatest tenets of the Old Testament, the one that involved Jesus Christ, right? But they were ones that persecuted. And, you know, they call themselves members of the synagogue, right? The whole community centered around the synagogue. Matter of fact, it's very similar in that way today, right? Uh, you know, let's go to the synagogue and worship and whole communities sort of center around that. If you were not a member of the local synagogue in that area, you oftentimes would be outcasted. Well, I can't do business with you because you're not a member of the synagogue. I can't really talk to you because if I get caught talking to you, well, then I might get kicked out of the synagogue. And the synagogue is my lifeline. It's my income. It's my, you know, it's all these things. Can't do that. So sorry, I don't want any part of you. And, and everybody called it, well, this is the synagogue gathering of the Lord. And of course, what does God say? He says, you know what? They're the synagogue of Satan. That's heavy. So they're gathering together in the name of God, and yet what they're doing is they're damaging and destroying the cause of God. And, and that's what Pergamus, or sorry, that's what uh, Smyrna was going through here. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. So look, he says, don't fear the fact that you're going to go through a lot. Don't fear the fact that you're going to, uh, that you're going to suffer because you are, and the enemy is going to do whatever he can to take anything away from you that he can possibly take away. And by the way, Satan is so very good at doing this. If he can't do it through 
uh, a blessing in, in some ways, you know, through getting your eyes distracted from God and focus on materialism and so on and so forth, he's going to do it in other ways. And one of the most successful ways he uh, oftentimes seeks to do this in, at least in this country today, is to get you so, you know, caught up in whatever circumstance that you're in that you forget about the real things that are going on. You forget about the real reason. And I believe in my heart of hearts that what God is wanting to do with us today is to teach us how to stop focusing on the noise and the gimmicks and the rhetorics of the enemy and really focus on the real issue. What's really going on? Stop looking at all of this stuff over here. And the problem is we spend so much time being distracted by all of these things. And oftentimes they're very difficult things. We, you know, we, we see people in our lives going through tremendous suffering. We're going through tremendous suffering and we're just wondering why, why, why? And we forget about the fact that God in his grace is working through every situation that we're experiencing. We're beginning to realize, you know, uh, you know, th- over time that, wow, God, you allowed this to happen for a reason. You allowed that to happen for a reason. We're going through this for this reason or we're going through that for that reason. God is so faithful. Faithful in allowing us to go through those things because he has a great plan. And so he's telling the church, he's saying, hey, look, I want you to endure. Now, it is interesting. He's talking about you shall have tribulation 10 days. And there's a lot of people that, you know, speculate regarding what these 10 days are dealing with. Um, one of the most common views concerning this with people who look at the churches with a dispensational approach, in other words, that each church represents a, a, a particular period of time. One of the things that uh, he might be talking about here when he talks about going through suffering for 10 days is when this letter was written, it was really in essence, or it was around the time that they started going through a series of great persecution and suffering, right? And each of these days represents one of the different Roman emperors that executed a considerable amount of uh, punishment for them being Christians. And so you had one evil emperor after the other. You had one evil emperor doing one thing. Uh, and, and, and man, let me tell you, the stories that these guys did in persecuting the church was tremendous. It was, it was horrendous what they were doing. And it is interesting when you got to the last emperor, right after the last emperor would have put you somewhere in the neighborhood of around 300 AD, which then the last emperor in this series of persecutions, right? Which then would bring you to Constantine. And Constantine, of course, has uh, a conversion, right? Where he ends up having an experience with the Lord. But then meaning well, I suspect, he basically made, you know, the church, the sort of the government, right? It was the religious acclamation, what sort of became the way of it. And that's kind of where we begin to see the birth of modern day Catholicism or Roman Catholicism. That's why it's called Roman Catholicism, because it started as such. And interestingly enough, that represents a whole other period, which actually will, will be the next church that we read about uh, in just a few minutes. So kind of an interesting picture that we see there. So he says that you're going to have tribulation 10 days. And he says, be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. I love, um, I love this exhortation. Be thou what? Faithful unto death. By the way, you would think that this wouldn't apply to us because we're not in a country that is being persecuted, right? We think this through. We're like, oh, well, this doesn't really apply to me when it says, be thou faithful unto death. Uh, We really don't have to worry about that because we're not in a country that's killing Christians, right? We're not in a country that is actually, um, you know, uh, persecuting us in that way. Well, first of all, I've got two things to say to that. Be careful because in a country where you have people running around saying pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon, right? And they're executing police officers left and right. Uh, we're not too far off from them beginning to protest Christians and doing the same thing, right? That's just reality. And, and in a country like this where we're beginning to give these types of behaviors and actions validity, it won't be long before those types of actions uh, begin to uh, uh, f- you know, come forth. But let's assume none of those things begin to come forth. Well, we still have great application in what is actually said here. I want you to pay attention. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. Well, just because your life is not going to end soon, let's say your life expands up to you know 100 years, 120 years, 130 years. Let's just say you live a very long life. Well, being faithful unto death means being faithful unto death. Continue to walk in your faith in Jesus Christ until the day you no longer have breath in your lungs. 
So, so the idea is, is carry that heart of fervency towards the things of God. No, I love the Lord. No, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to walk with God. I'm not going to deny the things of God in my life. I'm going to continue to be faithful to God in my, in my walk, in my heart, in the way that I move. I am going to serve God until the day I die. And if serving God actually leads me to that moment of death, well, then you know what? I'm going to be faithful to that point. I'm not going to deny God in the last moments of my life. As a matter of fact, like Stephen did, I'm, I know that if that were to happen to me, I'm convinced that I would see the glory of God as I was coming close to that moment. I think every single one of us would, right? For those of us that would make that decision to be faithful unto death. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, be consistent in your walk with me. Be faithful unto the very moment that you pass. And for us, there's a great lesson in that, right? If God tarries and he gives us another 100 years or he gives us another 30 years or 40 years or 20 years or whatever it is, may it be for every single one of these years we walk in faithfulness towards the Lord, right? That we seek him, that we don't turn our hearts from him, that we don't say, Lord, well, I'm going to allow myself to be distracted by this material gain or that thing or, or this or here. You know, and by the way, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's wrong or it's sinful if you're wealthy or you have lots of stuff. There is nothing wrong with that. Actually, more power to you. I'm going to rejoice for you in all of those things. But don't ever let those things take your eyes off of Jesus, right? I, I have a theory. And I do believe it is correct. I don't really think it's a theory. I think it's kind of like a spiritual law in some ways. If I have a man with a million dollars who doesn't know Christ, and then I have another man with a million dollars who does know Christ, let's make it a real note. Let's, let's say 200 million. Let's go from a million to 200 million, right? If I have a man who doesn't know Christ that has $200 million, and I have a man that does know Christ who has $200 million, guess which man is going to enjoy that $200 million a whole lot more? The guy's walking with the Lord. Here's, here's the reason why, right? Everything good that you have in this life becomes better if it's laced with Christ. Everything bad that you have in life is better if it's laced with Christ. If you don't have Christ, all it becomes is something else that you want to pursue that you'll never find satisfaction in. All it is, is another bad thing that you can't find a break on. We will never, ever be able to experience the fullness of the things of God. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. Ever, ever, ever. Unless we say, God, I'm going to trust you in every area of my life. Not only in richness, not only in, in poverty, not only in weakness, not only in strength, in every area, Lord, I'm going to give to you. And when that time comes, and I pray that that time comes for all of you, that you become wealthy, that your eyes will be on Jesus more than when you were poor. And if you become poor, that your eyes will be on Jesus more than when you were wealthy. Not because the condition or the circumstance is what causes you to look this way, but the fact that because of the change in circumstance, it has no effect. All it does is causes you to intensify your walk with God. That's the important thing for us, guys. Look, no matter what, faithful to him, uh, faithful unto death, there's a great reward that comes in that. By the way, life comes from that reward, right? That's, that's really what it is. Look at what he says. And by the way, it's no coincidence that he says this. This is such a, a powerful closing statement. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Wow. Now, I, I will say this. He does not uh, condemn the church in Smyrna. He does not say repent. He knew that they were going through great tribulation and great difficulty. And by the way, I think it is interesting that when the church of Jesus Christ gets squeezed and begins to suffer, it would seem as though what comes forth is a great scent. It would seem as though what comes forth is more power. Why? Because the Lord has this way of giving us strength when we go through so much. But I want you to notice the last part of verse 11. Notice the significance of the phrase in the last part of verse 11. It says, those that overcome shall not, what? Be hurt of the second death. Think about this for a minute. If you're born once, you're only born once, you're going to die twice. You'll die the physical death and you're already dead spiritually. If you're born twice in this world, you only die once. Think through that for just a second. And even then, that's not really death. It's passage into life. If I give my life to Christ while I'm on this earth, 
meaning I'm born again. Listen, I am not going to be affected by the power of death. That's what he's saying here. You overcome, you will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? The second death is what? Is the death of the spirit. It's spiritual death. And each and every single one of you, if you've not already taken advantage of what that means to not experience a second death, you need to. Because the second death is the one that you should all be fearful of. The second death is the one that all of us should be concerned with. The second death is the one that we should all be shaking over. It should be the one that we should have great fear over. And the Bible tells us that we have have no need to overcome the second death because Jesus already did it for us. All you got to do is receive him and say, okay, Lord, I accept it. So then he goes on to the next church. Look what he says here. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write these things uh, saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. By the way, the sharp sword with two edges um, is something that's, that's mentioned a little earlier. If you go over to uh, verse 16 of chapter 1, look what it says in verse 16 of chapter 1. It says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of the mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Isn't that a powerful uh, statement when you think about the picture that we see here, the, the, the light that was shed? I mean, what a, what a beautiful picture. And of course, we know his tongue, his mouth, what comes out, that sharp two-edged sword. We know that it's talking about the word of God here, that it's indicative of the living life of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, John, this same author, was the same person that declared that in John chapter 1 when he said, The beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The idea is, is God is this living, powerful word. We see that. And so uh, this is interesting. You would think when Jesus introduces himself to another church, as I want you to catch the pattern here. He does this with all the seven churches. In his introduction, he identifies himself in a way that is specific, which actually may be addressing one of the faults or one of the issues going on with the church. It is interesting how Jesus here introduces himself as the one which hath the sharp uh, sword with two edges. Well, God's word does what? God's word cuts to the heart, right? God's word is capable of discerning those things which can be shady and foggy and so on and so forth. So it's kind of interesting that Jesus identifies himself as this when we're about to talk to the church that is confused doctrinally, right? That's dealing with some pretty amazing, uh, amazingly heretical issues in some case. They're going through some different heresies, right? Verse 13, it says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast by name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Um, uh, this is uh, kind of an interesting thing. Uh, you know, you look at the, the, the picture of uh, even people that were faithful, even in this context, even in this situation, you begin to see the blessing that is... Uh, that God has in his heart when he sees people being faithful to him in serving him, right? And he says, I'm glad that you guys have been very good at keeping, holding fast, being consistent in your walk. But then look, he's going to say, but I have a few things against you, okay? And this is kind of interesting. By the way, just so you know, when he's talking about Antipas and he's talking about you know the faithfulness, these were people who failed to bow themselves down. They failed to capitulate to the pressure that existed to worship things other than God. And what, what you may or may not realize was this was a demand that was made by the Caesar, right? Caesar, his you know Roman law basically said that Caesar was to be respected and dignified as God. And this church refused to do that. They refused to look at their leader as such, okay? But look what he goes on to say. He says, he says, I have a few things against you because thou hast... Uh, there them that behold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto, do- unto idols and to commit fornication. Okay, if you remember the whole story, and this is actually a really, really interesting story if you learn about Balaam. You can go back in the Old Testament to learn about Balaam. Balaam was a guy who was uh, a prophet, but he was not a very good guy. He was a very greedy person. He was somebody that really wanted money. And so uh, one of the enemies of Israel, the king, says, hey, listen, uh, I want you 
you to, to tell me, you know, give me a prophecy. F- figure out a way to, 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 you know, God, I want you to pronounce a, a curse of God upon Israel, right? And of course, Balaam being the, you know, being the person who has to be true to what God says. Otherwise, he's not no longer a prophet. He says, dude, I can't do that. God's blessed these people. There's no way that that's going to happen. And so the guy's like, well, I'll pay you to make that. Well, you can't happen. But he wanted that money, right? He wanted the money from the king. So what does Balaam do? Balaam says, well, you know what? Actually, they're kind of is a way that you can still defeat Israel. You can get God to curse them. Wow! Uh, it's going to be expensive. Okay. All right. It's also going to cost you a whole bunch of women. Huh? What do I do? Well, get the prettiest women that you can find. We'll send them off into where all the men are. We'll get the men distracted by the women. They'll have sex with the women. They'll fornicate. They'll do evil. They'll get caught up in, 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 in all of the materialism and all the other things. And then God will, he can't help but to curse them. He'll curse them. He'll punish them for what they did. And that's a good way to defeat them. And so the king says, all right, awesome. Here you go. Here's your pay. Thank you for the consulting. You know, thank you for the consulting fee. And of course, Balaam takes off. Now, Balaam is a fool. If you remember, if you remember how foolish Balaam was, Balaam was the guy that as he leaves, right, he leaves doing this. Well, He's coming around the bend of the mountain and his donkey just stops, right? Remember that story? And Balaam is like, get that thing out of here. He starts pushing, 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 pushing. And the donkey doesn't want to move. So pretty soon, Balaam gets ticked off. He starts hitting the donkey. Pa, pa, pa. And the donkey turns around and goes, why you hitting me, bozo? A little modern day take on it, right? He says, why you hitting me? Can't you tell that there's an angel of the Lord around the corner with a big sword ready to smoke you? That's why I'm not going. Remember how we talked about if God can use a donkey, he can use me? Well, you know, I mean, think that through. So when he talks about the doctrine of Balaam, he's talking about the idea of a church that gets so distracted and focused on material gain, that gets so distracted and focused on things like money and things like wealth and things like riches and things like appearances, that the people become inundated with those things and they start to worship false gods. What does it mean they start to worship false gods? They worship the comforts in which they live. They worship their, you know, whatever it might be, their cars in those, in those days, their camels, their chariots, whatever it might be, whatever it was, they worshiped material and loved material gain and in doing so their eyes got taken off the Lord and of course if their eyes are not on the Lord they're going to be cursed by default why because their actions will bring them to a place of curse not because God is looking upon them going I'm gonna curse you right now because you're not focused on me no he's going to try to keep drawing them in but because they got distracted with the materialism and the financial gain what would happen oh man they would just say well you know what uh we're this we're gonna love all this and they drove themselves into the ground because they got focused on other things and not on God. That's the that's the doctrine of this prophet. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, it could be a, a number of possibilities of things that were going on with the church at this time. The big distraction at the time was the fact that the church was really at this time they were really growing in power. This more than likely would have represented a period associated with Constantine when he be, when he made the church the state basically. You know, and, and the church began to grow in wealth, in wealth, in wealth, and they got bigger and greater, you know? And I, there's a story that I heard, and I actually think it's true. Uh, I'll have to go back and look. I always say I'm going to look it up when I tell the story, and I never do. But the story that I remember hearing was you had a pope that was kind of standing there, and he was looking at all the money that he had, all the money that the church had amassed, you know, and he's playing, he's running his fingers through all the gold and, and, and looking at all the material gain, and he says, wow, we no longer have to say silver and gold have I none, right? And there was a man who was standing there who was filled with the Spirit, and he says, yeah, but you can no longer say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, Right? It's a heavy statement because the material gain and wealth took their eyes off of those things which are spiritual, those things which are critical, those things which are important. I remember when I first got into the ministry, I had all kinds of people discourage me from getting involved in it, especially because there were people who caught wind of a particular circumstance that took place when I first started getting involved in ministry. There was a man who tried to recruit me. He was hired by a company to do recruiting, to find people that he saw had special gifts. And this man came to me, and mind you, 
at 16 years old, actually 17 years old, and mind you, this was in the early 90s, he offered me a job that paid $150,000 a year. And everybody that caught wind of it said that I was dumb. They said I'd be, end up living in the car that I drive. Right? Because think about it. That was during the time when I first started in the ministry. And when I first started in the ministry, you know what my salary was? My salary was $152 a week. That was my salary, right? So to go from there to $150,000 a year, and, and in, in that point, he was actually telling me, well, you could still do all your church stuff. I'll give you all the time to do that, but this is kind of what we have to do, and so on and so on. The Lord's like, nope, don't want you to touch it. Yeesh. Man, people beat me up over that. People said, what are you crazy? What are you doing? There are so many people in the church today that are still focused on things like that. They make everything about money. They make everything about materialism. They make everything about, you know, gain and wealth and so on and so forth. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for nice, comfortable chairs and I'm all for a nice environment and a nice background and I'm all for spending money to make people comfortable and, you know, to experience something that is uh, relative, culturally speaking, to what we're doing, right? I'm not all about changing the message ever. I'll never change the message of the word of God. But there are people that go to crazy extremes with all this. And money can be a very, very powerful, it can be a very, very uh, 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 shaky force. It can be a force that could get people's eyes and hearts off of Christ, and, and it can cause people to go in a different direction. And I've seen it happen time and time again. I've actually watched that happen with pastors many times. We're pastors in positions of of oversight. They have great responsibility. There's not much accountability involved because they're at the top of the food chain in their organization, so to speak, right? People are giving because they're worshiping God and they feel called by God to continue to give. And, 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 you know, pastors oftentimes, um, you know, are put in this position where they have... Uh, you know, substantial amounts of money coming in, right? At least compared to the to the population gap. And it's so easy to take that money and use it as your own personal uh, piggy bank. It's so easy to take that money and use it for personal gain. And as the pastor becomes materialistic, the people in the body become materialistic and the church in essence begins to die. The focus is on materialism. The focus is on gain of other things. The focus is on all of those things that we pursue in life that are comfortable and wonderful and enjoyable. And the focus becomes instead of thank you, Lord, for these things, and we're going to honor you with these things, and we're proud that you've given these things to us, but we want to use it for your glory. We go from there to saying, I just want more of these things. I want to chase these things. I want them. They're part of my life now. And I'm, oh, and I'm this, and oh man, you know what I mean? And I just... I don't know, guys. I want to be the type of man that has a reputation no matter what he does, no matter what he gets into, no matter what possession he owns, no matter what he has, no matter what place he lives in. I want to be the type of person that has a reputation where people say, yeah, that guy loves God, right? And I hope you guys want to have that in your life. This church did not do that because they were what? They were distracted. By the way, a lot of things that distract you uh, these days, isn't there, right? I don't have to get into the craziness of pornography or the craziness of... Look, you don't even have to be anybody that's into pornography. Maybe it's just one of these things where you can't stay away from your computer, you know? You're on your computer for, you know, uh, 18 hours a day where you're just looking at, you know, one interesting website after the other or one YouTube video after the other, whatever it might be. I don't know. I don't care. Listen, nothing wrong with all those things, right? Nothing wrong with using that tool to do what it is that you, you know, you got to do or whatever. But you know what? There's a point in time where all of that begins to take over. It's no longer... Uh, a, a, a tool that you use as it really what it becomes is it becomes a God because it's what you obsess over. It's what you think about. It's the first thing that comes to your mind. It's the things that are on your heart. God says, uh-uh, no, no. That is the doctrine of Balaam. You don't want to be that person. You don't want to fall into that category. That doctrine, by the way, is so deadly. It's so destructive because what that doctrine does is that doctrine gets you in the mode that says the grass is always going to be more green on the other side. And the worst part about that doctrine is it never, prom- it never delivers on its promise. You go to the other side of the hill and the grass actually looks 10 times more jacked up than the place that you were in. You know what I'm talking about? Oh man, it looks great initially. It looks wonderful initially until it all burns out, right? I've seen this happen many, many times with married couples. 
you know, you'll have the husband complain and complain and complain about his wife. My wife is always beating me up. She's telling me that I'm this and she's telling me that I'm that. And my wife can't stop talking about this. And I hear that so much. So many men tell me it's such a common rant that I hear from men. And many times I always tell them, I say, you keep talking like that. And eventually you're going to talk yourself into doing something evil. And you're going to think things are better. And you're going to find the first girl that gives you attention. And you're going to chase after that girl. And then you're going to hate your life after you did it. Because not only will you realize that in fifth for 15 minutes of pleasure, you destroyed your whole life. But then you're also going to realize that, that whoever that person was that you thought was wonderful was really an ugly monster who never gave a rip for you in the first place. Right? I would much rather hear my wife saying, honey, you gain weight. We need to work on you. Right? Then meet some empty headed individual who doesn't care about me, who will tell me I've lost weight, even though I've gained a hundred pounds. Follow what I'm saying? You go to the other side and the other side never, never delivers on its promises ever. It's never better on the other side, unless the other side is Christ and the side you're on is evil. That's the only way that that promise gets delivered. And that's the problem with the doctrine of Balaam. That's the problem with the, with the lifestyle that they were living. The problem with that is it forces them into a place where it becomes empty. They go to the other side. They obtain what they wanted on the other side, and they realize that it does nothing for them. And so they think, well, I just need to get a little bit more. Oh, okay, I'll get better. Oh, I need to get more. Oh, okay. Well, no. Then you realize, no, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything for me. All it is is destructive. It, it, and you realize very quickly there's nothing but emptiness that's left behind and it leaves you going down a road that is not fulfilled, that is filled with destruction and pain and sadness. Look at this. Here's another thing that he finds wrong with them. He says, so thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitines, right? Which thing I hate. Well, by the way, we talked about this, right? We talked about the doctrine of the Nicolaitines and, and you know, the first doctrine we talked about is, of course, Balaam. And then the doctrine of the Nicolaitines, which basically is a doctrine that says, I'm going to rule over you. The church now becomes an agency of government in people's lives. And as an agency of government, we tell people how to live and we tell people what to do. And this is a very very, very, very dangerous place to go, isn't it? There are churches that are doing this all the time now. Churches that are telling people to live a specific way when God never intended for them to live that way, right? I know of churches that are saying, you need to come to the pastor before you bury somebody. The pastor needs to approve who you're going to get married to. Churches that are talking about, well, before you make this investment, you should talk to the pastor, well, you're really not spiritual if you don't check in with the church and people buy this garbage left and right, up and down. And I think what happens is we become so close to one another as a family in the body of Christ that the, those that are leaders of the church have a tendency to want to drive the affairs of people. Tell them this is what you're going to do and that's what you're going to do. Look, it'll blow your mind how many times I've seen things happening on Facebook or Instagram with people that go to this church that have grieved my heart. And I've wanted to just reach through there and say, what are you doing? Stop doing this. And the Lord says, you better have a conversation with me about that and not with them. Let me rule in their hearts. Let me help them figure it out. And I see it all the time. I see people come to me and they're completely hungover on a Sunday morning, you know, and they're, they're just completely messed up and like, oh, I'm feeling really bad, Pastor James. Will you please pray that God will heal me? And what I want to say is God will heal you if you stop getting hungover. You know, stop going and getting drunk the night before, dummy. You know, and God is like, shut your mouth. Let me bring that conviction to his heart. You have no business ruling over that man's life. Let me rule over that man's life. You, you just pray for him. Okay, come here, bro. Let's pray. And I kind of plug my nose. Hopefully I don't smell the bad breath of the lingering alcohol or whatever and the vomit all mixed up in their mouth and all that. He goes, Lord, in the name of Jesus, will you just touch our brother and father, you know, the, and then, you know, I remember this one time where this had happened. I was going through this over a series of weeks, you know, week after week after week. The guy would come to me, Lord, pray for me, man. I'm feeling so sick. And I'm like, oh, stop drinking. You know, knock it off. Don't go to the club. This turns into bleh, later. Stop it. You know? And so it come over and we do it week after week. And I remember it was like, it was one week and it was right very, very early on. Matter of fact, it was when we were in the other sanctuary over here. You know, what, what now is the, the overflow. And he comes up to me and he's like, Pastor James, what? I think I'm going crazy. I think I'm losing my mind. I'm like, oh, dude, he dropped acid too last night or something. You know, that's what I thought. You know, he went to the club and he took a little bit, he took a little bit more than he was supposed to. And he's like, what, bro? What's going on? Bro, 
bro, I, I went to the club. Every single week I would look forward to going to the club. I started Friday night, went back Saturday night. It was something I always looked forward to. It was one of the things. And I tried to go on Friday and the place looked disgusting. It was almost like the place transformed overnight. The floor was sticky. It just looked so ugly. The smell of, even the smell of alcohol grossed me out. I couldn't stand the smoke. The, all the girls looked really ugly to me. There wasn't a single pretty girl in the room. And I just, man, it was just so disgusting. And I didn't want to be in there. And I just, I felt anxiety while I was in there. And I left. I think I'm going crazy. No, dude, you're not going crazy. The Spirit of God's working on your heart. That's what's going on, right? And then after a while, he realizes, I want nothing to do with that. Well, guess what? I know, now he's serving the Lord elsewhere, and he loves the Lord, he's a good brother, but I know that he doesn't go to the clubs anymore, not because Pastor James threatened to beat him up, or Pastor James, you know, uh, went over it again and again and again from behind the pulpit. He stopped going to the clubs because the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to his heart, changed his life, and took him away from that place. That's the way it should work within the body of Christ, right? And that's, I think, for me as a pastor, it's one of the hardest things for me to deal with. I see people doing all kinds of crazy. I'm like, man, will you stop? You know, and you just, sometimes you just have to let the Lord tell them to stop. It's not one of those things that I can do. I can't force them and tell them. And parents, I know this has got to be one of the most painful things you go through on a regular basis. My mom and my dad dealt with this with me. They saw me do one stupid thing after the other, right? And although I wasn't one of these guys that partied and drank and all this other stuff, I was still doing a lot of stupid stuff. And I remember listening to my mom at five o'clock in the morning, Lord, save my son, get a hold of my son. My mom did a whole lot less lecturing. And a whole lot more praying with me. And when the Lord got a hold of me, it was the Lord that got a hold of me, and that's what transformed my life, and I've never turned back since. So the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is, well, I'm going to rule over you. I'm going to tell you what to do. And if you don't go to church this week, something must be wrong with you. Or, hey, brother, I noticed on Facebook you were hanging out with that guy. That's not a good thing. You shouldn't do that, right? You know, and there are people that come up to me all the time. They go, hey, bro, look, I was thinking of hanging out with this person. What do you think? And there's this part of me that just wants to just yell and go, no, don't do it. And I always say the same thing. You know what? Take it up with the Lord. Now, if someone comes up to me and says, hey, I'm thinking of hanging out with a prostitute. No, you can't. No, that's not the Lord, right? I can tell you that. I can tell you with authority, right? But in other cases, look, I'm just going to tell the truth. Look, I, I, look, personally, I'm not even going to insert my opinion here. I don't want to insert my opinion because I don't want to rule over you. I don't want to tell you how to live your life. I want the word of God to tell you how to live your life. I want the spirit of God to convict you. And I want you to change according to, to that thing, right? And so the reality of it is, is it's so tempting. It's so tempting to, to not only tell people what to do. It's very tempting at times to use the pulpit to manipulate people. Pastors do that all the time. They use the pulpit. They insert a little thought or an idea based on a circumstance that's going on, right? And you know what I, what I find out about people that do that? I begin to realize that when guys do that, and I did this for a while, when guys do that in the ministry, they literally take away the credibility of the power of the Spirit of God working in people's lives. I can get behind the pulpit and I can use the pulpit to manipulate somebody and maybe have that one person come to me and say, man, that really ministered to me, bro. Thank you. Or sometimes I'll get really mad and leave the church, whatever, you know, like that's happened. I've done that maybe a few times on a hand. One, praise God, only on a handful of times where I can remember doing that. Or I could do this. I could say, Lord, I don't care what's going on. I'm going to trust in what your spirit is doing in people's hearts. I'm going to just teach through the section of the word that I'm in. And you know what typically happens? I'll have 15 people come. Did you, did someone talk to you about what happened to me this week? You know, did no, no. Well, you know what? Praise God. Glory be to God. It was the spirit of God that ministered to that person and not James trying to sort of, uh, you know, uh, work something out and articulate something and put it all together and build it. Look, this is the way it is. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was exactly that. It was when people use the affairs of the church, use the influence of the church, use the power of the church to govern over people's lives. God hates that. He hates it because it's the church's attempt to take the place of the spirit of God in someone's life. That's what it is. I've even gone so far as to sit in a counseling appointment where someone had one of those vape things, you know, like the little, they're the, you know, and I'm beginning to talk to them, like, hey, do you mind? You know, and they pull out their little vape thing in my office. Well, whatever, do your thing, you know. I'm not going to say anything. I mean, there are times where I will, of course, you know. It depends on the circumstance. But I'm not going to tell a person how to live their life. I'm going to tell a person about the word of God, and I'm going to trust that the word of God is going to teach them about those things. By the way, it produces way better people when you do that too. You know what I mean? 
Because I have a group of people that are following God and not following me. And if they're following God, right? Yes, they follow my example. You follow me because I follow God. But if you're really truly keeping your eyes on God, when I mess up as your leader, you're not going to get mad at me. Well, you might very short-lived, right? But eventually you'll get over it and you'll keep continue on, right? If you're following me, well, I'm going to let you down. I'm going to be devastating to you. And then we all might as well drink Kool-Aid. You know what I mean? I mean, that's kind of how it works, right? My name is James. Anyway, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't like being called Jim. Anyway, so it's a doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And this is something that he also came against. And he, by the way, this is a very strong language that he says here. He says, which I hate. I hate it. I hate the people that would use the power and the influence of God's call on their life in the church to manipulate, to, to take over, to actually bring for their own gain. It is so sad. One last story that I can think about this, and it really is a, is a heartbreaking story. I have a friend who, when he first started in the ministry, at the time he was working for Inglewood Police Department. And um, he uh, heard on the radio that one of the pastors was calling for a police car because the church got broken into. Of course, being a Christian and being in the ministry and being a pastor himself, he says, you know what? He gets on the radio, he goes, I'll take that call. And he rolls over to the church and he meets with the pastor. And he goes to the pastor and he, he gets all the information that he needs from the pastor about what got taken. And he makes this itemized list. And he tells the guy, hey, look, I'm going to go out of my way to investigate this myself. And I'm going to bring in the detectives to help or whatever. And he says, but I promise you, that stuff's not important right now. Listen, bro, I'm a pastor myself. And I'm in the ministry. So I just like to, before I leave, this is a man in uniform, right? He says, before I leave, I'd just like to lay hands on you and just pray that God would encourage you. And you know, this is God in, you know, in God's hands. And, it, and he's beginning to share with him. And the guy just goes, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a pastor. He's really saying this. He goes, dude, I'm really not into all of this stuff. I'm really into this because the money and the power. My friend's like, okay, well, I will be praying for you, right? But you'd be surprised with how many people think that way. You'd be shocked. And that's not the type of thing that I I like talking about. That's a shameful thing. And don't get me wrong, there's way more people that are faithful and solid and loving God and teaching like I'm teaching and doing, you know, uh, doing the right thing. But man, isn't that sad? That is the doctrine. That is the doctrine that he's talking about that he hates. You take advantage of the position that God has given you for your own personal gain. That is so sad. That is so sad. By the way, this is not a license for you to go to a pastor who you know is wealthy and say, you are part of the church. Of... No, that's not, it's not the case, right? It's just not the case. Some of you may or may not know this. Some of you may or may not know that Pastor Chuck was extremely wealthy. Some of you may or may not know that the last 20 years of his, of his life and his ministry, actually probably the last 25, 27 years of his ministry, he didn't take a salary from Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. People don't realize that. You know, and you know, we were kind of sworn to secrecy about that as pastors while he was alive. But now I can tell you, right? He's more alive now than he ever has been. But, but the idea was God gave him a lot of wisdom in many investments that he made and you know, part of an inheritance and his father was a relatively wealthy man. And, but you just think about the faithfulness of God in that man's life. It doesn't make him evil or anything like that. Chuck was the first person to tell you that he would use his own, he would use his own financial gain to bless people instead of the other way around, right? And so um, it's about the heart, right? It's about the attitude. It's about the mindset, right? So very, very important. I spoke to somebody recently, uh, kind of on the, uh, on the opposite side of this, from a church, um, faithful brother in a church where he's ministering in an underprivileged area, very, very difficult uh, part of a particular uh, community. And he was just having a frustrated day and was going on a rant about how some of the pastors in the more wealthier communities like Orange County or so on, oh, they dress so nice and look at all the fancy clothes that they have or whatever. And I just said, whoa, 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 slow your roll. Slow down for a minute. Do you know these guys that are ministering over there? No, not really, but it just makes me sick when I see da da da. Okay, well, first of all, I know some of the guys you're talking about. They're godly people. They love the Lord. They care about glorifying God. And before you beat them up for what they might be wearing, right? Wearing fancier clothes or whatever, look at the people that they're ministering to, right? If you dressed up in fancy clothes in the area that you're ministering, not a single person would respect you. If that pastor dressed up like you, Going in that area, not a single person over there would respect them. So before you're quick to judge, 
right? Look at the spiritual, <laughs> right? What are they doing for the kingdom? What are they doing for the kingdom? And, you know, I think that it, so these issues have balance, right? They go hand in hand. They're very, very important things to think about and to consider. So the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, God said, look, I hate that. I hate that. And that was something that they were doing. But look what he says. This is an interesting exhortation, right? He says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Ooh, repent or there's going to be judgment. If you don't repent, I will use the very word that you use to cause benefit and gain for yourself. I will use that very word to destroy you. It's a heavy statement, isn't it? So, repent quickly. I love that phrase, repent quickly. It means if you know you're doing wrong, just stop. Don't say, well, I'm going to ease myself out of this, you know. I talked to somebody recently who told me, yeah, you know, I'm going to quit drinking, but oh, I'm going to go hang out with my friends at the bar still every now and then and so on and so forth. No, that's not repenting quickly, right? <laughs> you go to the bar, you hang out with your buddies. What are you going to end up doing? You're probably going to end up drinking, right? That's just what happens. That's just reality. And we all have certain weaknesses that we would capitulate to if we allowed ourselves to, to fall in the same environment. It was something that always used to bother me. Every single time I got in a police car with a guy who chewed tobacco, right? They pull out their can of Copenhagen and they'd open it up and they put a little bit in their lip and that smelled to me. I remember the first time that ever happened to me, I was in a patrol car with one of the, one of the tougher officers, you know, one of the one, one more aggressive cars and he pulls out his can of, of Copenhagen and he's getting ready to put some of that stuff in his lip and he can see this open look of disturbance on my face. And he's like, oh, pastor, is this offensive to you? I know it's a nasty habit. I got to get rid of it. I go, yeah, it's kind of offensive to me. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, uh. I go, hold on. You don't know why it's offensive to me. It's offensive to me because every time I smell that stuff, I want to load my lip with it. I want it. Oh, well, you want some? (laughs) No, that's the point. The point is I want it bad. You know, and of course, the word got out about that every now and then. They, they can't open their can, put it right in my nose, and want some pester. Come on, chappy, you want a little bit? Huh? Come on, I got them in the pouches, hook it up. Oh, you know, and I was like, oh, I want to kill you right now. what I want to do. You know what I mean? But, but the point is, is I had to make it very clear from the very first time that that happened. I had to make it very, very clear that I can't touch that stuff. Because if I said, yeah, give me that can. Can you imagine? I'm the chaplain. You know, hey, got to tell you about your son. Let's pray. You know, (laughs) got a cup, you know, not going to work. It's not going to work, right? It's not going to work. It's called, listen, listen, folks, it's called repent quickly. Make the decision to walk away from it. Make the decision to never do it again. No matter where you are, decide I'm going to, I'm called by God to glorify him. Now I bring up that story because I remembered very, very new in the Lord. And I had just started serving in the ministry. I was probably not even a year in the ministry. I may have been 17 years old at this point, 17 or 18 years old. And I take a road trip all the way to Idaho to go visit a brother in Idaho. And um, um, we were doing some recording over there and, and I was visiting his church. And so as I'm headed over there, we go through this little town called Ely, Nevada, E-L-Y, Ely, Nevada. We go through this little town and there's a gas station where we stop to go and fuel up. And as we're stopping to fuel up, I walk inside the gas station. Uh, Jane is like, oh, let's get some goodies. So I sunflower seeds and chips and whatever, all the stuff that you take when you're on the road to kind of keep you awake. Gum when you're going up the mountain so the ears pop and all that stuff. Doing all that. Getting, just hooking it up, right? Stocking up, whatever. You know, and I get to the counter. And as I get to the counter, I realize I got to go get one thing. And as I turn around to go get the other thing, I see the cans of Copenhagen and Skoll there. And they're all on sale. They're on sale for like two dollars right well that was the regular price but there was no tax for that stuff so it was two dollars instead of like eighteen dollars or whatever i don't know whatever it was you know at the time like man that's such a cheap price i know my sister probably wouldn't freak out she probably wouldn't even know what i was doing especially if i was spitting out a sunflower seed every now and again and i'm in nevada no one's gonna know you know what why not that's what i think so I, I'm excited. I'm like, I'm going to buy a can. So I go over to get you know, the soda that I forgot to get or whatever it is. I come back, the Lord says, don't you dare do it. You made a decision that you will never do this again. Do not dare do it. 
you were, you, you know, the, the, the picture was you made the decision to never do it. Don't go back, James. I will not honor you. I will not bless you. Ah! So I go and I kind of begrudgingly in a way, you know, go to pay for the soda or whatever. I realize I can't get that can that I wanted to get, you know, as I'm paying for that stuff, I'm, you know, I'm looking down, I'm keeping my head down and I'm pulling out the money or whatever. And the guy reaches over to me, he goes, Pastor James! Now this is Ely, Nevada. There is no Facebook at this time. There is no internet, right? I'm not on the radio. How in the world does this guy know me? How in the world does he know me? Oh, bro, bro, you'll never believe this. I just recently moved over here, but I used to go to Calvary Downey, and I loved it when you came to the men's study to teach, and you've been so ministered to me. And like literally a few minutes ago, I was so discouraged. I'm like, Lord, please send somebody to encourage me and pray for me, and I'm just so messed up or whatever. And you just showed up, bro. God bought you. Now, can you imagine if I'm looking down? Hey, dude, uh, hook me up with a can of that uh, Copenhagen right there, whatever. (laughs) That wouldn't have worked, would it have, guys? It would not have worked. It would have been very, very bad. The point is, when you repent, you repent. You walk away from it. You say, God, remove me from it. I'm not going to allow myself to be influenced by an environment. I'm going to pull myself out of that environment. I'm not going to capitulate to those things. And that's when God reminded me, man, wherever you go, man, you better act like everybody knows you. Why? Because I know you. I see you, right? That's why he says repent quickly. It's, it's, it's the picture of, man, just go for it. Repent, right? Now notice what he says. This is pretty significant. He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Right? Very, very common, right? To Here's the promise. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth. What a beautiful set of promises. When he talks about the hidden manna, let me tell you why this is so significant. And people miss this because it is a bit hidden if you don't understand it. You remember what manna was all about, the story of them being in the wilderness and the whole picture of manna? They're like, God, we're hungry. We can't eat. Why do we leave Egypt? God says, okay, tell you what, I'm going to give you food. You wake up in the morning, you just gather all you need just for the day. If you take more than what you need, it'll go rotten rotten and nasty, and you're not going to be able to eat it anyway. And of course, some people did that, and they learned their lesson, and they didn't do that after that. So they go up in the morning, they gather all they needed for the day to get them through the day, and that was it. And the whole idea was God was providing for them, right? They didn't know what it was. It's food they'd never seen before. So they would say, oh, what is this, right? And that's what manna means. Manna's like, oh, what is this, right? Without the uh part, but you know, what is this? So the idea is God would provide them food every day, right? Every single day. And they would learn to rely upon the Lord. And the Lord became as reliable to them as turning on the light switch is to us. They provided. There was never any lack. God says, if you overcome, I'm going to give you hidden manna. Now, what does that mean? That means whatever holes and gaps that are in your life that you think you can fill with materialism or that you think you can fill with gain of power and position or you think you can fill with whatever it is you think can fill that hole, forget about it. If you repent, I will give you a hidden manna that will give you all the satisfaction that you could ever possibly have. You will live a life that is completely fulfilled and happy in me. That's what he's saying here. That's the promise. Here's the other promise. And this one is also significant. He talks about a white stone where he's going to end up changing your name. Look at the history of God changing the name of people. Remember? You can learn about the history. There's my buddy Yaakov. That's my namesake, right? Yaakov means heel catcher. Why? Because he was the second born and he was born when he came out of his mama. He came out of his mama holding on to the heel of his brother. What does that mean? That means he would do that for the rest of his life. He'd be holding on to the heels of other people, hustling. You know, he, was a respe- he had a respectable hustle. He hustled and hustled and hustled and hustled and he was good at it. That's why he was called Yaakov, the conniver, the city slicker, the hustler. That was what that name meant. God said, I can't use you when you're not broken. And then God begins to break him. God causes him to run for his life. God begins to 
put him in a position where he gets deceived again and again and again so he would learn the pain of deception so he would understand how it would destroy him if he continued to do that and live according to that way and eventually what god did was god put him in a situation where he was in a wrestling match with god and when he finally gave up and lost the wrestling match god said i'm no longer going to call you yaakov you're no longer going to be the self-sufficient city slicker conniver i'm now going to turn you into your name will now be israel meaning governed by God, you are ruled by God. You're no longer ruled by your hustle. You're now ruled by me, right? Or one of my favorites, Saul. That was his name when he was evil. And God said, no, your name is now going to be Paul. I think that is so beautiful because God has a way of renewing us. (laughs) My little, we call him Pollywog, my little nephew, Paul, you know, when Paul behaves, misbehaves, and he hates it when we do this, right? When he misbehaves, we start calling him Saul, you know? Hey, Saul! When his parents call him Saul, we know what's going on. He's, he's doing something evil. He hates that, too. He hates being called Saul, you know? But the picture is, is this name change is indicative of the area where you used to be one person, and now you're another person. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and get name changes here, okay? But what I am saying is this. I am saying, God is promising Not only is he going to give you the fulfillment, that hidden manna, right? He's also promising that he's going to transform you. All you have to do is say, God, I don't want to do this anymore. You know what? I want to meet you right here. And God will say, okay, I'll meet you right here. And guess what? I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to transform you. You're going to be a completely different person. And there are so many people that I know at this church that have new names, if you know what I mean. They tell me about the things that they used to do, and I'm like, I don't even know that person. How many times have you heard someone, like I've had someone come up to me and go, well, you know what? I used to do this and I used to do that. Mike, he'll tell me some crazy stories from back in the day. I'm like, dude, I don't know that Mike. How many times have you said that? I don't know that, that, you know, that Gary. I don't know that Greg. I don't know that George. Or I don't know that Howard. I don't know that Steve. You know, uh, well, of course, of course you don't know that person because God changed their name. I know this Steve. I know this Gary. I know this Howard. I know this. That's the, the picture that we see of the grace of God. You repent and he gives you a new name. Literally, he changes your reputation. You become that which God wants you to become. You become a different person. It all completely changes. I don't know about you, but that should be an exhortation to me to keep my eyes on the Lord. That if my eyes are going off in any way, or in any how, or in any place that I would say, Jesus, I'm putting my eyes back on you. That's what it's all about, right? It's all about seeking him. And the reward that comes from capitulating to sin is death. The reward that comes to submitting to God is a life. And life that's abundant and fulfilling. Give it a try, right? Can you go anywhere else? No. No, God has the words of eternal life. He's the one that will give you the hope that you need to travel on and to move forward. Amen? Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this time. And we thank you for the, uh, Lord, just the richness that we get in studying your word, Lord, going through the things that these churches went through, Lord. And uh, Lord, just learning, Father, the work, Father, and uh, the work that you want to do in our hearts. And even next week as we get into, uh, you know, false prophets, Lord, and Thyatira, Lord, and learning some of the issues that were going on there with them. Lord, may we be drawn closer to you and learning from the example, Lord. And, and even the church that was dying in the lukewarm church, Lord, as we get into many of these things, Lord, that we begin to see. Lord, may we learn of you in our hearts. May we give ourselves to you. May we seek you. May we, may we walk with you, Lord. May we learn from the examples of these churches in this church age. Lord, as we're seeking you, let us, Lord, be those people whose hearts and minds are given to you. So, Lord, we love you, God. We thank you. Go before us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.